Chapter Twenty One of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Why the SOS? Mallow voiced this question as he entered Gray's hotel room early the following evening. I am in a predicament, and I hope you can help me, the latter explained. I'm trying to remember something, and I can't. I have a cold spot in my head. Mallow deposited his bag with a sigh of relief. Glad it's no worse. Anybody can cure a cold in the head. Sit down and light up while I tell you about it. In a few sentences, Gray made known the story of Ozark Briscoe's infatuation and the reason for his own interest therein. The woman is of the common get-rich-quick variety, he concluded, and she won't do. She didn't pull the family estate and her father's slaves and the orange grove on you, did she? Oh, no. She used that on Buddy, and he believes it implicitly, so implicitly that she warned me to keep off the track. She showed her teeth in a nice way. I've seen her somewhere, in some place, where I should not have been. But where? It must have been in this country, too, not abroad, or I'd remember her. Maybe I haven't been as wild as you, Governor. This is a big country, and I've missed a lot of disreputable joints. The former speaker smiled. You have trained yourself to remember faces, Mallow. Your researches, scientific researches, my dear professor, have led you into quarters which I have never explored. I must identify this venturesome little gold digger without delay, for Buddy yearns to make her all his. Matrimony is becoming the one object of his life. Why not let the poor carp have her? It's tough enough for a dame to get by since prohibition. I don't see how they make it, with everybody sober. Chances are she'd get the worst of the swap at that. Not unlikely, but that is neither here nor there. Understand me, I'm no seraph. I pose as no model of rectitude, and unfortunately, for my peace of mind, Miss Montague is a really likable young person. But Buddy has a mother and a sister, and they hold me responsible for him. We three are dining downstairs in an hour. Perhaps you could look in on us. Sure, I'll give her the once-over, Mallow agreed. If she's anybody in our set, I'll know her. The dinner had scarcely started when Gray heard his name paged and left the table. In the lobby... Mallow was waiting with a grin upon his face. "'Is that her?' he inquired. "'That is the girl.' "'Girl? Arlene Montague, huh? Her name is Margie Fulton, and she had her hair up when they built the Union Pacific.' "'Nonsense. You're mistaken. She can't be more than twenty-five, thirty at most.' "'A woman can be as young as she wants to be, if she'll pay the price. Margie had her face tucked up two years ago.' cost her five thousand bucks. I can't believe it. You see it every day. Look at the accordion-plated buttes in the movies. Why, some of those dolls nursed in the Civil War. Those face surgeons have ironed the wrinkles out of many a withered peach. And you're dining with Margie Fulton, the suicide blonde. I know her kid. Her what? Mallow's hearer gasped. Sure, she was married to Benny Fulton, the jockey, and they had a boy. Benny was ruled off in New Orleans and started a gambling house. New Orleans? Wait, I'm beginning to remember. 
Into Gray's mind came an indistinct memory, the blurred picture of a racetrack with its shouting thousands, a crowded betting ring, then, more clearly, a garish, over-furnished room in a southern mansion, clouds of tobacco smoke rising in the cones of bright lights above roulette and poker tables, negro servants in white, with trays, mint juleps in tall, frosted glasses, a pretty girl with straw-colored hair. You're right, he agreed. Finally, she was a come-on. That's her. She worked the betting ring daytimes and boosted in Benny's place at night. Whenever she was caught, she suicided. That's how she got her name. Just what do you mean by that? Why, the usual stuff. A bottle of water with a poison label. If a mullet threatened to call the police, she'd cry, You have ruined my life. Then with shaking hand, she'd pull the old skull bottle and drink herself to death. Of course, the poor leaping tuna usually got the acid out of her hand in time to save her. She saw to that. Gray was laughing silently. My dear professor, he confessed, wisdom of a sort is mine. Sometimes I grow weary with the weight of my experiences and wonder why the world so seldom shows me something new. But besides you, I am as a babe. Tell me, what has become of the ex-jockey husband? She divorced him, mind you. Margie was square, like most of those come-ons. She'd how dare a guy that so much as looked at her. You know the kind I mean. And the child? Where do you suppose she keeps it? Mallow reflected. The last time I saw the little cherub, he was singing bass in a bellboy's quartet at Hot Springs. He hops spells at the Arlington summers and butchers peanuts at the track during the season. You know, hollers, here they come, before they start, and then when the women jump up, he pinches the betting tickets out of their laps and cashes them with the bookies. Could you get hold of this, this boy Basso, and bring him here without letting him or his mother know? I can if he's still at Hot Springs, and I saw him there the last time I was up. The little darling got me into a crap game and ran in some shaped dice. Of course, it would cost something to get him. How much? Mallow shot his cuff, and upon it gravely figured up the probable expenses. Well, there would be the fares and the eats and his bit. He wouldn't come for nothing. He'd jip me for ten dollars, but he'd probably come for five. I'd offer him three. There's a thousand dollars in it if you can produce him within the next forty-eight hours. I doubt my ability to sit on the safety valve much longer than that, for Buddy Briscoe is rapidly breaking out with matrimonial measles. If I throw cold water on him, it will only aggravate the disease. A thousand dollars, Mallow cried. Why, for a thousand berries, I'd bring you his head on a platter. I'll car the little devil down and lock him in a suitcase. The speaker hesitated a moment before concluding. It's a dirty trick on Margie, though. I know, but I'm thinking of Buddy. Now in heaven's name, hurry. My constitution may survive a few more roadhouses, but my reputation will not. That night was a repetition of the one before, but with variations and with trimmings, for Buddy wore his two-pint trousers again, and this time they were loaded. Hence Gray had a chance 
to observe him at his best. Or worst, a little liquor went a long way with the boy. He derived much effect, many by-products, so to speak, from even a few drinks, and the elder man was forcibly reminded of Gus Briscoe's statement that his son had a streak of the old Nick in him. It was true, but he was indeed like a wild horse, artificially stimulated. He became a creature of pure impulse, and those impulses ran the entire gamut of hilarity. He played the drum. He wrestled with a burly doorman. He yelled whenever he found what he called a good yelling place. He demonstrated his ability to sing Silver Threads Among the Gold to the accompaniment of a four-piece orchestra energetically engaged in playing something quite modern and altogether different. These and many other accomplishments, equally unsuspected, he displayed. On the way from one lively resort to a livelier, he conceived the unique idea that he could swap ends with his touring car in much the same manner that he could turn a nimble cowpony, and he tried it. Happily, the asphalt was wet, and in consequence, the maneuver was not a total failure, although it did result in a crumpled mudguard and a runaway. Milkwagon horses in Dallas, it appeared, were not schooled to the sight of spinning motor cars, and the phenomenon filled at least one with an abysmal horror. Ray felt sure that he had visibly aged as a result of that ride, and he began to understand why a new crop of wrinkles was appearing about the corners of Margie Fulton's eyes. No wonder she was beginning to look a trifle weary. Fearing that Buddy was likely to turn sentimental without warning, the elder man monopolized as much of Miss Montague's time and attention as possible. He danced with her frequently, and he assiduously devoted himself to winning her favor. The result was a tribute to his acting and to his magnetism. In a moment of abandon she confided to him that she wished he had Buddy's money, or that he was a marrying man. Both of Buddy's flasks had been emptied by this time, however, so Gray was not unduly beguiled by this flattery. On the whole, it was a horrible night. As Gray languidly crept into bed about daylight, he had the satisfaction of knowing that he had at least excited his young friend's open jealousy. That might act as a stay. On the other hand, of course, it might have directly the opposite effect. One could never tell. And it might be part of wisdom, therefore, to gain possession of that diamond ring. Buddy sought him out in the lobby early the next afternoon. After a colorless greeting, said queerly, Would you mind coming up to my room for a minute? Certainly not. I'd have looked in on you before this, if I thought you were up. As the two mounted the wide marble stairs, Gray went on cheerfully, Not looking your best this morning, afternoon, my lad. As for me, I am, in a manner of speaking, reborn. I have taken a new start. Careful reflection upon the providential outcome of that amazing skid has convinced me that whatever joys or sorrows assails me hereafter, however much or little of life is spared me, it will all be velvet. A touch of mascaro about my temples, and I shall look as young as I did yesterday. What are we going to do tonight? I don't know. Once inside his spacious suite, 
but he flung himself into a chair and with trembling fingers lit a cigarette. It was evident that he had something to say, but he either dreaded saying it or knew not where to begin. His companion, meanwhile, pretended to look out upon the street below. In reality, he was observing the young giant. Poor Buddy, he was suffering. The latter cleared his throat several times before he managed to say, You don't want me to marry Arline, do you, Mr. Gray? Frankly, my boy, I do not. Why? There are many reasons. What's one? I don't think you love her. Briscoe stirred. Is that why you went and got that diamond ring I had made? When this query met with a nod, the young Texan's face flamed and his eyes glowed. What in hell? He swallowed his anger, rose to his feet, and made a nervous circuit of the room before coming to a pause at Gray's side. His lips were working. There was a tragic, a piteous appeal in his eyes. His voice shook as he stammered. I didn't mean to break out at you, Mr. Gray. I like you, gee. You're kind of like a god to me. I'd rather be like you, then. Well, there ain't anybody I like like I like you. You could get her away from me if you wanted to. But you wouldn't do a trick like that, would you? I was mighty happy till you came. You got that ring with you? I have it in my pocket. I want it. Buddy extended a quivering hand. Why? I'm going to ask her to marry me today. If she won't, I'm going to. She will. Buddy gasped. You sure? I'm quite sure she would if you asked her, but I don't want you to ask her. When an expression of pained reproach leaped into the lad's face, the speaker explained quickly, Don't think for a moment that I care for her, nor that she has the slightest interest in me. It is you that I care for. What you just said pleased me, touched me. I wish you could understand how much I really do care for you, buddy. Won't you wait a few days before you? I can't wait. You must. The men eyed each other steadily for a moment. Then Buddy demanded, quarrelously, What have you got against her, anyhow? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. She told me everything there is to tell, and I told you. I don't care what she's done. If she's ever done anything, she's had a hard time. Will you wait forty-eight hours? No. Twenty-four? Give me that ring. When Gray made no move, the speaker ran on, excitedly. I'm a man, I'm of age. It's none of your business what I do, nor Pa or Ma's either. It won't do no good for them to come. Gray went to the door, locked it, and pocketed the key. Buddy, his voice was firm, his face was set. You are a man, yes, although you were only a boy a few weeks ago. You are going to act like a man now. You're going to try and hold me here? The inquiry was one of mingled astonishment and anger, for Jan Briscoe could scarcely believe his eyes. Don't do that, Mr. Gray. I, nobody can make me do anything. Please don't. That's plumb foolish. What if I told you that Miss Montague is? Buddy interrupted with a harsh cry. Damn it. I said I wouldn't listen to anything against her. I'm telling you again, keep your mouth shut about her. The youth's face was purple. He was trembling. His fists were clenched, and with difficulty 
he restrained even a wilder outburst. You can have the ring, but you let me out of here quick. When this command went unheeded, he strode toward the bedroom, intending to use the other exit, but his caller intercepted him. Let me out, the young man shouted. One of us is going to remain in this room, and I think it will be you. As Gray spoke, he jerked off his coat and flung it aside. Better strip, Buddy, if you mean to try it. Buddy recoiled a step. Incredulously, he exclaimed, You, you wouldn't try that. This is my room. You must be crazy. I think I am, indeed, to endure what I have endured these last two days, to make myself ridiculous, to be humiliated, to risk my business ruin just to save a young fool from his folly. Impatience, resentment, anger were in the speaker's tone. I never asked you. You butted in and tried to cut me out. That's dirty. You was lying when you said. Have it that way. I've run out of patience. Ozark Briscoe, too, had reached the limit of his endurance. He exploded. Momentarily, he lost his head and cursed Gray vilely. For answer, the latter moved closer and slapped him across the mouth, saying, Fight, you idiot. Buddy's low, gasping cry had the effect of a roar. It left the room echoing. Then, savagely, he lunged at his assailant. He was blind. In him was a sudden maniacal impulse to destroy. He had no thought of consequences. Gray knocked him down. It was a blow that would have felled an ox. As the youth lay half-dazed, he heard the other taunting him, mocking him. Get up, you lummox, and defend yourself. You'll be a man when I get through with you. Codes of combat are peculiar to localities. In the Northwoods, for instance, lumberjacks fight with fists and heel. In the Southwest, when a man is mad enough to fight at all, he is usually mad enough to kill. As Buddy Briscoe rose to his knees, he groped for the nearest weapon, the nearest missile, something, anything, with which to slay. His hand fell upon a heavy metal vase, and with it he struck wickedly as Gray closed with him. This time they went down together and rolled across the floor. The legs of a desk crashed, and a litter of writing materials was spilled over them. Gray was the first to regain his feet, but his shirt had been half torn off, and he tasted blood upon his lips. He had met strong men in his time, but never had he felt such a rock-like mass of bone and muscle as now. Buddy was like a kicking horse. His fists were hard as hoofs, and that which they smote they crushed, or bruised, or lacerated. He possessed now the supreme strength of a madman, and he was quite insensible to pain. He was uttering strange animal sounds. Shut up, Gray panted. Have the guts to keep still. You'll rouse the... He dodged an awkward swinging blow from the giant and sent him reeling. Buddy fetched up against the solid wall with a crash, for Gray had centered every pound of his weight behind his punch. But the countrymen rebounded, like a thing of rubber, and again they clinched. A room cluttered with heavy furniture is not like a boxing ring. In spite of Gray's skill and agility, uncommon in a man his size, it was impossible to stop the other's rushes or to avoid them. Straining with each other, 
they ricocheted against tables and chairs, and only the fact that much of the furniture was padded and the floor thickly carpeted prevented the sound of their struggle from alarming the occupants of the halls and the lobby. They fought furiously, moving the while like two wrestlers, trying for flying holds. Time and again they fell, first with one on top, then the other. Their flesh suffered, and they grew bloody. The room soon became a litter, for its fittings were upset, flung about, splintered, as if the room itself had been picked up and shaken like a doll's house. Gray managed to floor his antagonist whenever he had time and space in which to set himself, but this was not often, for Buddy closed with him at every opportunity. At such times, it was the elder man who suffered most. In a way, it was an unequal struggle, for youth, ablaze with a holy fire, was matched against age, stiffened only by stubborn determination. Neither man had longer any compunctions. Each fought with the ferocious singleness of purpose. Buddy's face had been hammered to a pulp, but Gray was groaning. He could breathe only from the top of his lungs, and the bones of his left hand had been telescoped. Agonizing pains ran clear to his shoulder, and his hand itself was well-nigh useless. It was an extraordinary combat. Certainly the walls of this luxurious suite had never looked down upon a scene so strange as this fight between friends. How long it continued, neither man knew. Not a great while, surely, measured by the clock, but an interminable time as they gauged it. Nor could Calvin Gray afterward recall just how it came to an end. He vaguely remembered Buddy Briscoe weaving loosely, rocking forward upon uncertain legs, blindly groping for him. The memory was like that of a figure seen dimly through a mist of dreams. Then he remembered calling up his last reserve of failing vigor. Even as he launched the blow, he knew it was a knockout. The Colossus fell, lay motionless. It was a moment or two before Gray could summon strength to lend succor. Then he righted an armchair and dragged Buddy into it. He reeled as he made for the bathroom, for he was desperately sick. As he wet a towel, meanwhile clinging dizzily to the faucet, his reflection leered forth from the mirror, a battered, repulsive countenance, shockingly unlike his own. He was gently mopping young Briscoe's face when the latter revived. Buddy's eyes were wild. He did not recognize this unpleasant stranger until a familiar voice issued from the shapeless lips. "'You'll be all right in a few minutes, my lad.' Briscoe lifted his head. He tried to rise, but fell back limply, for as yet his body refused to obey his will. "'You licked me,' he declared faintly. "'Licked me good, didn't you?' "'Buddy, old oh Buddy!' It was a yearning cry. Gray's streaked, swollen features were grotesquely contorted. You won't be bad with me, will you? Want to fight any more? The victor groaned. My God, no, you nearly killed me. This time Buddy managed to gain his feet. Then I reckon I'll go to bed. I feel pretty rotten. Gray laughed aloud in his deep relief. Right-o. And after I phoned for a doctor... If you don't mind, I'll crawl in with you. End of chapter 21